Hello, my name is Michael McLennan, and welcome to COVID Matters, a podcast produced by COVID Aid. Today we're speaking to Alec Finley. He's an artist and poet whose work crosses over a range of media and forums. Much of his work considers how we relate to landscape and ecology. He created the National Memorial for Organ and Tissue Donation and has written manifestos on disability, rewilding and constrained walking, as well as essays and poems on ME, his experience of long COVID and cultures of recuperation. This was an expansive, engaging and moving conversation which takes in Alex's experiences with ME and long COVID and how they intertwine and affect the recuperative nature of his art, as well as discussing Scotland's COVID memorial and a whole lot more. I think there's an immense amount which can be taken from what he has to say, and I'll be back afterwards with a few more details about what he's up to. It'd be great to know a bit more about what you were up to prior to the pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, I suppose in my life, the arc of my life, the two defining moments were I got glandular fever and then ME when I was still at university, when mm-hmm. I was 21. So I was never able to enter the conventional world of work. I was disabled and very ill in my from my 20s on. And I gradually became first a publisher, then an artist and poet. And I love those things, and maybe I would have gravitated to them anyway. I do have some skills in them, but but also they were the only things that seemed to fit the pattern of my life, my energy, my limitations. I could often work in bed. I could do site visits, workshops, events, and then rest afterwards. And so, and in an almost deeper sense, there's something interesting about art that it it converts things into more than they are. And that includes, it has an odd financial structure that you're not really being paid by the hour. Mm-hmm. You're almost being paid. Well, you, 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 you can almost find that your downtime is earns you money <laughs> because you'll have ideas. And sometimes those ideas won't come to life for not a number of years. So then that life of ME was a gradual recovery, but never getting better. And um, I got worse again in 2010 and 2011 when I got swine flu and then I reacted to a flu jab. So that told me that my immune system wasn't working well. And each time I had four or five months in bed, very, very seriously ill. And that was a precursor to COVID. I think of my energy ability in terms of, with ME and long COVID, of, of, of relapse time. And one of the interesting things about them is their illnesses that create what's known as boom and bust. So if you cross the line, certainly for me, the relapse is always the same amount of time. It doesn't really matter whether I I go a little bit across my limit or a lot. And at my worst with ME, my relapses were five days, with the worst being day three. And I got it down to about two and a half. That was the best I ever got. So if I walked too far, I would relapse for two two and a half days, with the second day being the worst. And long COVID, when I got COVID in March 2020, that just pushed it all back up again to a five-day relapse, which I've now got down more to four, although I don't tend to go over the line. I don't know if that's a funny way to discuss it, but I've become really interested in almost like models of energy economy. So you, you have to train yourself in pacing so that instead of doing these boom and bust, it becomes gentler waves because it's simply not worth, a relapse is a very painful, debilitating, emotionally upsetting thing. So it's better to not go into that state. And just to be practical, 
I could walk between 500 and 1,000 meters with my ME at my best, and I wouldn't relapse. And now, my, with long COVID, my walking went down to 150 meters. But I can be active in the house. I can do walk around now. Still have to rest a little bit. I still often work vertically. So that's just a really initial sketch, maybe an odd mix of the practical and almost talking about patterns. Mm -hmm. And I think something I had with... When I went into long COVID, a lot of people with long COVID are in a state of shock. The first three years of having ME was just deeply exiling and shocking because I no longer understood what my own body was and what it could do. And whenever you go into a state of relapse, you feel like you're going to, you're dying. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you your body is so painful that you don't want to be in it. It's very emotionally upsetting. Sometimes you can have maybe suicide ideation. And it took a long time to adjust. So when I got long COVID, it was deeply upsetting and traumatizing, but I recognized what it was. And I, I didn't have... When I look at the message boards for the long COVID sites, I see people like I was at 22 and 23, where you are in an existential state of crisis, where all your habits of your body have to be relearned or are unlearned or are, are kind of catastrophized. And you have to learn things like being vertical, is a very different bodily state to being horizontal. Mm -hmm. As simple as that. Some of the reactions of ME and long COVID seem to be to do with being vertical. And, and, and for me especially, uh, walking is, is the key trigger. So I, I have an odd situation where it's terrible what's happened, but I've developed a kind of interest in it as a, an embodied experience. And I try to think of it in terms, it's going to sound odd, but I think of it in terms of models of rewilding or, or renewable energy, or we can talk about that more, about our art. How do we, how does a landscape recover? Very slowly. Mm -hmm. How do, do we think about energy comparing the burn of petrol with renewable energies, kind of sense of being perpetually available, but being waves. And so I try to be creative and use my own body to think about, so the situation of limit that we've all been in. People who are well have been limited for the last year and a half almost. You know, the pandemic has been basically an experience of limit. Limit in space, money, what we can do, social life. Long COVID is worse because you add in pain and, and so on. But at least there's some commonality. And so I'm interested in trying to talk about limit not simply as a negative, because that limit of the pandemic, I think we all recognized that was also a kind of a, how life would be if we adjusted to climate change. Mm -hmm. So you see that actually parts of the pandemic were a positive model. And there were things about it that you went, okay, this wouldn't be so bad if I lived in a neighborhood or if I worked at home that actually there are aspects of this adjustment. Adjustment, and a, a crucial word is adaptation. Mm -hmm. So maybe if you want to, we can move on from that, but that's sketching a wide range of ways of looking at it. And I've seen a number of people on long COVID sites say, 
this is the worst thing that ever happened to me, but it brought me back to the life I should be living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was reading recently about that idea of it's not necessarily just about recovery, but it's also about discovering something about yourself uh, and then being able to prioritize in a way that maybe people weren't doing before. Um, I, I was interested in terms of when you contracted and when uh, a long COVID uh, happened to you, uh, what was the process in terms of uh, finding the online community and, and starting to become a part of it? The first thing I'll say, what's interesting about long COVID, it's not true of everyone. I think there are two separate things. There are people who, whose bodies were catastrophically affected by the virus and were in hospital and now are debilitated by damage to organs. And I think there are people that never went to hospital, like me, actually who didn't have the virus especially badly and who have long COVID. And I'll come back to what you were asking, but one of the things that interests me, having done a lot, quite a lot of reading that came out of long COVID and even with ME, is that every major world virus seems to produce about 20% of people that have long-term illnesses. And there's now a view that Spanish flu, there's a lot of diagnosis of neurasthenia after that. Uh, typically what happened with ME too, a kind of psychologizing of these people saying that they, they simply had some flaw that meant they couldn't get over um, and they were emotionally affected. But now the view is that they had ME or what you might better posit is a post-viral, we have a, a, a post-viral state. It happened after MERS and SARS. Uh, there are studies of Hong Kong where 20, 20, 25% of people had long-term impact. It's usually with ME and long COVID predominant more women than men. And there are theories about that. That was one of the reasons it was being diagnosed as hysteria. But now people are beginning to think, well, what makes women's bodies differently? I don't remember, in, I was off social media. I went off social media a year before long COVID. So it took me longer to pick up. But then I began to pick up probably about a month then I think it was Ed Richardson's wonderful site was the first one. I actually did more writing myself. When I still had COVID, I made a, a creative toolkit. I just realized I wanted to do something. And I also got my friend Chris Watson to do a couple of audio walks for people that were ill, isolating. So I was active straight away with my limited energy. It was also like getting my will redone trying to put my collected poems together. It's a very odd month. And then it settled down. I recognized I had long COVID and, and the term gradually began to emerge. And then I found the body politics site, which was interesting and it was vast. It had a worldwide reach, which was interesting because you saw the differences in medical treatment. You know, Americans have a terrible me medical system, but they get a hell of a lot of tests if they paid their insurance and they were being given more drugs. So it's probably about in the two to three month period in that I began to look. And I hadn't been that much using ME sites. I'd adapted to my ME and I found it was easier to detach from the medical establishment because they weren't helping. And I managed it and I became an amateur professional in my ME. When I got the post-swine flu condition, that was catastrophic again. And I did a lot of reading, but it was more around candida and mold and if, if things in the body to do with lungs, because my main impact was my lungs. But there weren't really such there were specific sites i re-engaged with my immune system mm -hmm. function 
2010-2011. I also had attended an ME clinic, which was interesting, but it taught me how limited what they could offer was. The long COVID sites are much richer resources that came up much quicker by very articulate, engaged people. And they were incredibly helpful, but almost like a kind of sifting process. The two main aspects would be the emotional impact, which I kind of was already semi-adjusted to. It was still terrifying, but I had a memory of being in my 20s and being almost that ill. And the other aspect was simply medicine, which you could divide into alternative and straight, as it were. And um, quite quickly, you were beginning to see a worldwide report of what people were trying. And a lot of it was, I think this helped, then it stopped helping. You know, there wasn't, if there was a miracle, then we'd know about it. But it was giving resources and peer-to-peer peer -peer testimony and witness. And so it was incredibly useful. I found the body politics site a little bit overwhelming in terms of the sheer scale. And I wish it had been clear about where people were because gradually I connected to the UK thread where you, you saw that basically the NH, NHS provision was, was very limited, to be honest, and that people weren't getting that many tests and there was very little uh, medical help. A, a little side road of this would be the whole debate about the relationship between ME and long COVID, which was played out on there. Mm -hmm. And I liked, so I forget Ed's site's name, but you can say it's it in a the, minute. The uh, COVID-19 Recovery Collective. Yeah. I really liked that as they were like little essays, very reflective, thoughtful, I really enjoyed writing mine and, and it didn't have the kind of slightly chaotic aspect of body politic long COVID SOS, which was more like reading social media. And eventually people were just posting quite random things about it's a nice day or which I, you know, people became habitual about using it. Mm -hmm. Ed's site was almost more of a research site I didn't go back to it much, but I valued it a lot. And I thought this is going to be really useful. Those are the two main ones. And then I was running my own creative toolkit and the odd and, and the audio walks. And we, we did the audio walks with on Bandcamp and we made a donation. And that's actually ended up being a really good record that I still get people paying 79p or a tenner. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I see that it's still circulating somehow because I'm not on social media to promote it. So I, I was interested in terms of from that stage, uh, you were speaking earlier about the idea of renewable energy. Um, and I wonder how that factored into um, your own kind of recovery and led into the uh, work with Scotland's COVID memorial and how that came about. Just going to add a little afterward to what I was just saying that when I was okay. doing, when I re-engaged with ME sites, it would actually be Dr. Myhill's site, which is quite well known amongst ME people. She has a very interesting position as a kind of alternative straight doctor. She's a GP, but she really buys into how do you treat ME? She has a kind of regime, but she posted a hell of a lot of medical research. And that was a very interesting resource. Mm -hmm. And I would use her site as a resource. In terms of, it's actually less renewable energies. The parallel is more to do with me with um, landscape and ecology. 
okay. is an easier one to explain. I've made a lot of work about landscape, especially wild landscapes and mountains. And there's something paradoxical, a little bit mad and quite cussed. I made a five-year project about the Cairngorms. I'd never been up a mountain and I couldn't go up a mountain. So it's quite an odd thing to do. Mm -hmm. so I was using my art to access places I couldn't reach. I would do things like work with place names and their meanings. So I could sit by the road and look up and say, well, that burn, that stream means that. There used to be a wood there. There was crofts up there. They used to hunt there. That used to be a pine wood. And I got quite interested in how you could access places imaginatively. And I also became very engaged with rewilding. And I began to make a body of work that was about two things. Often art is interesting because it works by bringing things that don't seem to connect together. And I was interested in the Kerms Gorms project. We had to do some recordings up on top of a mountain. So we had to get the equipment up and we got driven up in a Land Rover. And I came along. Really, it was the equipment that was getting taken. And it was incredible. I'm getting emotional now. It was incredibly emotional. For 30 years, I'd never been on these mountains that I, lo that I loved. And in Scotland, in the Highlands, there are all these hill tracks that have been made for people to go hunting or occasionally to access wind farms. And I just went, this is mad. These tracks are here and disabled people don't get to use them. And so I made a project which basically repeated what I'd done. I worked with Land Rovers, with um, people at John Muir Trust, Forestry Land Scotland. Um, and we did a one-off pilot where we took four people with various chronic disabilities up a mountain called Day of Access, incredibly simple idea and very moving. And this was before I got long COVID. And the other aspect of that project was to think about rewilding and healing the land. So I have a little motto for the project, vulnerable bodies in vulnerable ecologies. And I thought in my lifetime, our awareness of mountains has changed. We used to just see them as very solid, massive objects that you climb. And now we're aware of the vulnerability of mosses and lichens. And we creatures, and we think of the landscape as vulnerable. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I don't have any shame in saying my body is vulnerable. And when you have a chronic illness that affects you physically, especially when it relates to relapses, you become a bit intimidated by wild landscapes, almost partly subconsciously. You begin to associate them with pain, so beauty and pain. And so day of access was about this state of vulnerability, but enabling people to be in the landscape. And when I got long COVID, I began to focus on a particular narrative of recuperation. So wild landscapes take, you know, a decade or two or three to recover in, in, in recovering the pine woods of Scotland. It takes 15 years really for the pine seedlings to start coming through when you get rid of the deer, but they do come through. And my recuperation from ME happened over decades. There was no magic moment. If you asked me in my 20s, I'd say, well, I'm ill for five days at a time. I'm always ill, but the relapses in my 30s, it would have been, well, three or four days. In my 40s, about two and a half, three days. So you, 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 be, you become an age, I'm 55 now, where you have a different view of life. And the awful thing for me with long COVID is it put me back to 21. And I've been gradually evolving out of 
the ME. Maybe I'd never get rid of it. And suddenly I was back again into starting from, like, you know, snakes and ladders. You've got halfway up and then you go down the snake. And so I began to think about a model of recuperation based on landscape, that it takes time, you can't force it. But all you can do is, a word I like is ameliorate. So you can do lots of little things. They don't, they don't immediately heal you. They help your body recover. And I, I was talking yesterday to a group about the two basic models that there's a kind of debate and catastrophe around with ME and long COVID, the old psychological model, which basically says you have to push through it, which created this really terrible graded exercise theory of ME. You just have to keep doing more. And you, you know, basically there's something wrong in your brain that's telling you to get ill. And the other, idea is recuperation, that you rest. And with the energy you save, your body gradually recovers. And I'm very much for that second view. And I think it's a philosophy of life. It isn't wrestling. Mm -hmm. And I, I really think that we are going to come to a reckoning with the whole CBT school of any long COVID and this um, profoundly prejudiced and malign view of human nature that doesn't believe people's account of their symptoms. This is no, you're the problem. You need to be doing more. You need to kind of Presbyterian Calvinist, you know, uh, and, and everyone who gets ME or long COVID tries anyway they're constantly overdoing things. And the real battle, the courage to recover is learning to stop before you cross the line. Just as with a, an, an addiction, you know, the battle is finding the gentleness of self-care. And I would go a walk for 200 meters and I can do that. I could go a walk with you today 300 meters, I wouldn't collapse, but I'd be in bed for six days. And I'd have lost six days when I could have been recuperating. So you can talk about this at a physical, emotional, spiritual, and philosophical way. We've had a petrol-based economy that burns. But you can switch to an economy, you know, I just got a smart meter put in. Well, that allows you to pace your energy. And I think that there's so many positive uses of these models. To have a recuperative model of culture. Another way of talking about it would be the benefit system. We have a system that either quite often you're, you are ill or you can work. Now that gray area is rarely respected. And when I was very young, I went from being on disability living allowance, which is URL, you can't work, to being on disability working allowance. And that was a progress for me. That I had a recognition of my disability, I had some benefit, but I could still be creative and active. But without the pressure of having to work all the time, which would make me ill. So I became a productive member of society. And then I got kicked off that benefit by a malignant DWP doctor who just didn't believe in ME. Mm -hmm. And I had to model my life to survive and I managed that, but a lot of people don't. If we had a kind of universal basic income, then everyone that gets catastrophically ill would be in a better situation in terms of recuperation and we could move to a recuperative model of society. When people go through a divorce or get ill or their house burns down, they could recover. You know, why, why don't we build our economy 
around a model of recovery, adaptation, creativity. These are the models that we need to recover from economic collapse, like you know the banking collapse, and from the pandemic. So disability can give you a model of culture that isn't about disability. Mm -hmm. I'm here blethering on. No, no, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I, I was thinking in terms of the, uh, specifically with the benefits, um, welfare side of things that uh, friends I've known have spoken about it as being, you know, can be intensely traumatic because especially as somebody who's ill, then they have your symptoms stated in, in sometimes very blunt, uh, dismissive terms exactly. can be adding to what you're already experiencing. And I've lived through the demedicalizing of the benefit system. But when I first went, I, at least I saw my GP and he signed me off sick. And then it was a, a, a DWP doctor who, who was clearly just a very malign figure. But it wasn't my GP. I still had, he at least, at some respect, I could trust him. Mm -hmm. but, and then when Ian Duncan Smith came along, they completely demedicalized that process. And we can talk a bit about my experience with PIP. But the culmination of it for me was when the benefit agency said to me in a letter, we are discounting some of your information that you gave to, sorry, we're discounting some of the information your GP gave us because it came from you. Something I had said to my GP, they were unwilling to believe. And that is a level of, of again, malign prejudice, but it goes against science. And we've seen this against, again and again during the pandemic. Boris Johnson and people wanting to pretend that the virus stops being a virus. You're constantly this kind of boom and bust of this ebullient, oh, well, it's kind of stopped being a virus now. Mm -hmm. But we see it hasn't stopped spreading. So where are you right now in terms of the PIP and that side of things? Well, one of the things I've tried to do since I got long COVID was share my experiences because I felt like at least I had some 30 years of background. And one of the things I've noticed is that ME groups and ME people have been able to be really helpful to people with long COVID. Even though some of the long COVID proponents kind of wanted to keep ME separate because they didn't want to be lumped in with an illness they knew had been treated very badly. I'm going to come on to the benefit, but one of the really interesting and difficult and important things about long COVID is so many medical professionals have it. And that's created a situation where suddenly the rest of the medical profession has to decide, are we going to believe these people? We pushed away people with ME. It took us 30 years to even begin to believe them. We let them be subject to CBT and graded exercise. And a lot of doctors were basically saying, I don't want to go through the process that people with ME go through. I'm not having that. So it created a kind of witness peer to peer. And so I'm trying to be peer to peer for the benefit system. The benefit system is incredibly malign and set up to be. It cannot cope with illnesses that don't have a medical understanding and tests. It took me a year to go through the process of PIP. I applied in June because I'd been ill for three months and I recognized it wasn't going to change or not rapidly. I didn't get my interview. And the interview is with a spotty 20-year-old in Colchester. It's not with a doctor. And there's a long form that you will seem unrecognizable to people because it's so little concerned with medicine. It will be, can you reach a cupboard above you? Can you reach a cupboard below you? Can you plan a journey? 
and you will find often that most of it will be irrelevant to you. Can you get in the bath? Can you shower? And you have to keep a diary of your illness. And you have to, even though doctors are often, if I'm honest, unhelpful or in a neutral place where they can't help, you need to assemble medical evidence. So you need to do telephone conversation with your doctor where they register your symptoms. You need that as evidence. You need to know that PIP you will be really aggressive. Not necessarily the people you speak to on, on when you ring them up yourself, but when you get your judgments. I was rejected the first time just in an automatic way. Zero disability, even though I couldn't walk further than 150 meters. Mm -hmm. Zero disability, and my life had been completely changed. That's not even to mention all the, the gut issues, you know, the breath issues, simply the fact that I can't reach the bus stop, and yet I was being told I wasn't disabled. Mm -hmm. So then I appealed. And the second letter was interesting because it was much more aggressive. And it was written by what I might call one of their Dracula doctors. There was some attempt at medical knowledge in it, but very hostile. So I had mentioned my ME and it's it attacked me for not attending treatment for my ME. There is no treatment for ME. It said I wasn't seeking treatment for long COVID. There's no, no long COVID center in Scotland. And there is, my doctors offered me one thing, I'm a tryptoline, but you know, there's nothing else. So they will aggressively pursue you. I had foolishly explained on, on, in the telephone interview that I had walked 250 meters and it made me relapse for six days. They wrote down, I could walk 250 meters. You know, that's the level of it. Mm -hmm. So you have to do the worst case scenario, including lying a little bit to try and adjust for their lying about you. And then I went through that you go finally to a tribunal and it took an incredibly long time because they kept asking for medical evidence and it's very difficult to give them any. And I got a wheelchair from my doctor really easily actually I can't use it very well because I can't push it because of my muscles but I could use it if I wanted to go a trip I could be pushed in it and so I, I gave as part of my medical evidence and I have a wheelchair they discounted that so this is not evidence so it's that <laughs> you literally trying to convince a Kafkaesque entity wheelchair forget it and finally, I got my doctor to write and, and actually say to them, there are no tests. There is no treatment. And they even discounted that. But when you speak to the tribunal, it's not the DWP. And I think around 40% of cases, you can do a better, you know, information. A lot of cases are overturned. Mm -hmm. There's a GP there. Mine was sympathetic. There's someone from the DWP who's kind of officious. And I was happy. It was very exhausting. It lasted an hour and a half. I, I gave very detailed account. He even went into stuff about my diet and my food sensitivities that I didn't expect them to listen to. Mm -hmm. And I heard, sorry, I didn't mention one thing. As soon as you enter uh, the benefit system, you must get help from the Citizens Advice Bureau. You get an officer and you do nothing without them. They help you, you can't do it without them. They're incredibly good and necessary. And I had my person from the CAB was on the line as well. And I was honest in most of my answers. And so in the end, you know, they felt that I could look after myself, which I can in the house. I accepted that. 
So the only benefit I was really looking at would be in terms of my mobility, my independence to enter the world. And they awarded me standard mobility. Could possibly argue that I should have had a higher grade on that. But I accepted, I accept that as a fair decision. Mm. So that's only £23.70 a week. But that will help pay for some of my vitamins and minerals, and it will pay for an Uber or a taxi when I need to go somewhere. And it also ethically and morally and emotionally, I feel like I've been heard. Mm -hmm. and I'm being recognized as disabled, which is important in certain situations to do with like bus passes. And it means that long COVID is beginning to count for them. It, it, they aren't actually interested what illness you have. They're only interested in what you can and can't do. But it's still true that if you can't, get clear medical tests, they find it harder. Or more, they can be more aggressive to you. But I only share my story so that people, first of all, know to get CAB. Secondly, <clears throat> get detailed down on medical records. Thirdly, expect that it could take a year or certainly six months. Fourthly, know not to be put off until they get to tribunal and the tribunal will be different. Those are the key things I learned. Mm -hmm. Never vote Tory. If you're gonna vote Tory, know that if another virus comes and you get ill, you will be in a system that will be aggressive towards you. So if you wanna do that, be clear about that. And I've seen people on long COVID sites say, I wish you hadn't made jokes about people. I wish I'd believed in ME. Mm -hmm. I wish that I had thought about what it's like. You know, a lot of people going through that grief, shock, and, you know, it's, it's important that we're talking mm -hmm. about the politics of this, that we have to make a culture in which disabled people can be productive mm -hmm. and don't starve. And that just as much goes for people on the breadline who are now suffering incredibly. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was interested, um, I think what you said there is really powerful. And I, I know, you know, at one point you said about yourself being uh, heard and recognized. And I wondered about how that factors into what you're now doing with Scotland's COVID memorial, because the idea of I remember is yeah. obviously very tied in with that. Yeah. One of the difficulties of my life was not just having an illness, but having an illness that was in my 20s, 30s, controversial and seen prejudicially. I grew, I had ME at a time when it was referred to as yuppie flu. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an incredible state of mind for a culture to get into where people's core experience of their body is not just being disbelieved, but aggressively disbelieved. And I never had a good experience with a doctor. I had some neutral ones. I had to pay Dr. Myhill for my first experience of being treated as if my symptoms were real. I'm going to come to your question, but a lot of people end up with alternative therapy partly because they're listened to. And it's one of the good and difficult things about it that quite often one sees an alternative therapist, they'll have a particular view of life. Like you need to, to do Tai Chi or take these vitamins or do colonic irrigation. And they'll tend to have one thing. It's like a seam of minerals and they go, but what? But the first part that helps people is you sit in a room and you're listened to. What's odd about it is your symptoms are then always interpreted in terms of what they do, and they feel like they have the answer. But at least it gives you a model of respect and trust, because with long COVID and ME, people suffer as, as 
you know, one would use a feminist analysis of medicine, for instance, you know, to say that ME was treated badly because more women had it. So you need to find situations where you believe, and that's where the websites come in. I had in my life that experience of ME, and when long COVID happened, I felt like it was going to finally end that because I felt long COVID was so big. And I still tend to, that culturally it will be believed. Or in an odd way, ME will be believed because ME was the canary in the coal mine. If we'd treated ME properly 30 years ago, we would have 30 years of medical research that would have helped long COVID. So how stupid have we been by dismissing an illness? So I say all that because medicine has to start from the person with the illness being believed. And we have a really interesting state in a culture just now where we have a lot of social debate around being believed. And it's being thrown up by very quite, quite specific experiences. So women's experiences, um, VAME experiences are being incredibly validated very fast and very deeply in a kind of reification of social media. What we don't yet have is a situation where the idea of being believed is general. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a kind of overcorrection. What I mean by that is we attend to particular issues. I won't talk about it today, but I had an experience of, of living with a violent partner. As a man, you really can't generally talk about that. And I'm not interested in kind of identifying with that of being a victim, but it's interesting whenever you can't talk about a thing. And I think the division is about 30% men, 70% women, but we have a kind of culture that goes, it's just women. And I don't think that helps solve the problem. The problem to me is solved when we listen to everyone and we go, yes, this is a problem of power and violence. And it's the same with medicine. So the simple fact of listening to people and believing them is important. And the way I'm working on the COVID memorial is I I already knew about this form called I Remember, which an American artist invented way back in the 70s. And he was writing about really about his memories of childhood, kind of like Proust, like Proust on one sentence at a time. And he would write about candies. He remembered the wrappers and collecting what we would think of as like football cards and, you know, very rich. And I realized that if I collected I remembers, that would fulfill a purpose of witness. And the reason for that is I don't think we have a settled understanding yet of what COVID is. It's too soon. Sorry. It's too soon in the pandemic. We have a lot of individual experiences, but we haven't yet a settled understanding. It's too big a thing. In the same way as the Second World War, you can see the understanding evolves over time. It begins by a reckoning with conflict, and then later it begins to look more at trauma. So we're going through these processes. And I realized that if I just collected people's I remembers, individuals, it would be the best way to make a kind of reckoning, a witness of the pandemic, a book of remembrance. Sometimes that is for people to remember a loved one that died, but just as much someone that got long COVID, part of their life died and had to be reborn. Someone that lost their restaurant, someone that lost their work, someone that had to change their life, someone that, whose partners got ill, someone whose son got ill, someone whose parent died in a care home. All of these experiences are included. And it's been really interesting. We've been handing out, I've been sending out these invitations to different groups and we sent them, a, we made a little flyer, which you can share with your members. And it went to the bereaved families, people that had lost loved ones. And I had a little, 
wave, a little tide coming in from them, incredibly touching and moving. And then we did a big call out with the NHS and I had 60 emails in three days, which is a lot of I remember. And so we begin to see these different communities. But in the book, everyone's I remember is anonymous and they all have the same space and they make an archive a little bit like a kind of mass observation. And I hope that that will be useful for all of us to come to terms. And so really it's about validating every experience. We don't need people to say, well, it didn't affect me. It affected everyone. And I believe that we need a culture that can reckon on the diversity of experience and stop. As we've moved through this social media, incredibly intense sense of identity, it's also met, meant a kind of conflict between identities sometimes, where you will get these very troubling debates and wars between people who are possibly having kind of victim identity. We see it around the issues around trans people and, and so on. And what we need is a culture of reconciliation and understanding where we understand any experience of exclusion, violence and prejudice and see the commonality. Mm -hmm. And the model for this that I respect above all else is a book by Elaine Scarry about pain, where she wrote about pain by writing about people with chronic pain and victims of torture. I was saying earlier about this thing art does where you bring two things together. So she brought those two together, which wouldn't normally, normally go, let's talk about chronic pain or isn't it a terrible thing? Let's talk about torture. That's a wicked thing. But when you bring them together, you begin to have resonances. For instance, the sense of exile, the sense of shame. And I really believe in it. She talks about if I have pain in my body, that will be the deepest experience I can have. But you can't access it except by believing me mm -hmm. and by you having pain. And you have to know that I believe in you. So we use our own experience of pain to trust another person's. And when people with ME were dismissed as having a psychological flaw, that, that doubled their pain because they were already confused about their own body. They were already going through a lot of myths of why has this happened to me? And sometimes they were engaging in, if I just do this, I'll get better. You know, it's some kind of trauma. Trauma is part of illness, but that doesn't mean we should psychologize illness. So I believe very much in processes of parley and truth and reconciliation, Northern Ireland, South Africa, at a cultural level. And I'm, I'm trying to make work that does that. And so the I remember isn't about me. All I do is I accept every submission and I make an archive and we'll make an online record of most of them. And I paint every single one on a bit of A4 paper, everyone that comes in. So they're all given the, this kind of unity, this uniform feeling. Mm -hmm. and some people do six or a dozen, some people do none, but they may read one by someone else and go, yeah, that happened to me. Mm -hmm. Some of them are funny, some of them are angry. Some of them are tragic, but they're all valuable. Little experiences often speak to big events. Mm -hmm. um, I'm aware of uh, the time in the sense that I'd love to, I think there's so, so much more we could speak about. Maybe, um, but I, I was thinking just as a kind of final question, and what I'd love to do is maybe we can do another conversation after you've done the workshops that are coming up. Yeah. But, but I was wondering um, what you expect or hope to get from the workshops and, and the work that you're planning to do over the next few months. So we're doing some workshops for this 
I remember project and really it's just a chance to engage with people one not quite one to one in a small group 12 or 15 people and there's something different about writing in a, in a shared environment and hearing each other's and we'll also talk about the memorial itself it's just that importance of you know when we think something we don't know it really until we hear ourselves say it to someone else it's just sharing mm -hmm. i really love art as a kind of way of sharing in the same way when we did day of access that small group going up the mountain were witnessing each other and there's just something very moving about that i'm really interested in peer-to-peer medicine support and, and conflict resolution. As individuals, we can all do that. So the workshop is just a chance for us to, to meet. It's nothing more than that. And if people want to, they can sign up, but they can just as much be part of the project by sending in an I remember. Mm -hmm. And at this stage, do you have an idea of how, so it's going to be in Pollock Country uh, Parks, do you have an idea of how it'll look at this time or is it still very much to be determined? I'd love to come back to you and talk about what the memorial will be next year. Mm -hmm. but I know that it will be the whole of the park and I know it will be a mixture of very modest and very ambitious. Mm -hmm. I can't, it, the idea is about to pun on the word support, how we support one another and the physical support, walking stick, crutch, a pillar of a building, the way a tree holds up another tree when it's fallen. So it, that's my clue for you. It'll come out of a dialogue about support, but that, I don't want to say too much. There's some images on the blog that say more, I better suggest that, but the workshops are to talk about that. But I wanted not to make a single war memorial type thing that people would stand in public around. It has to be both very public and very private. So there will be pieces that you can find just by a path, and there will be people that, pieces that are hidden in a glade. And so I hope that what will happen is that people can go there and go, I'm going to use this one as where I, I remember my loved one. Mm -hmm. When I worked on a, a, a memorial for organ and tissue donation, I realized that although in a kind of post-Diana culture we've created, we've become very comfortable about almost extrovert demonstrations of grief. We love leaving flowers with messages and, and being seen to. Social media just makes people constantly wish to be seen to be. And I realized with the, or, the organ donor project taught me when someone's in grief, they need privacy, safety, security, protection. You don't want to be seen. They're going through very deep emotion. So I created a memorial there, which was in a, a wild, overgrown, hidden space. Not overgrown now, but I mean, it's secluded. It's private. They can take their grief there. Mm -hmm. And with this, it has to be even, even bigger. It has to be both visible because of the intensity of our experience. It's only the war that's an equivalent for this. And it also has to have a private aspect. And there is an idea that there will also be satellites around Scotland. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like I'm thinking of a, a little constellation in the park and then a wider constellation around Scotland. Constellation would be quite a good way of thinking of the feeling of it. So it will be as much about walking between these simple objects. Thanks so much to Alec for speaking to us. If you want to find out more about Scotland's COVID memorial and the workshops that are taking place over the summertime to inform them, then we'll make sure to post some links in the show notes. We'll also look to speak to Alec at a later date to find out more about how it's going and what his plans are. If you haven't heard of COVID-Aid, 
We are the UK's new national COVID-19 charity, set up to help all those who've been affected by COVID-19. You can find out more about us at covidaidcharity.org. That is covidaidcharity.org or by visiting us on social media. Thanks for listening and until next time, take care.